0: Let's open in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Welcome back. Psalm chapter 2 is a deep psalm. It's a rich psalm. There's a lot that's happening here in this chapter. And honestly, as I was preparing for this Sunday, I thought to myself, Psalm 2 doesn't deserve one sermon. It deserves three sermons. You really need three sermons. To look at this psalm through three different lenses, but rather than dominate the month of June and just focus on Psalm 2, because there's a bunch of other psalms we need to preach on, I am going to preach three sermons on Psalm 2 all today. Okay? Back to back to back. We'll be out of here by dinner time. No sweat. Um, but we need to do this. We need to give it its due because there are some rich things to see about this. There are three readings we're going to do in Psalm chapter 2. We're going to do a contextual reading a Christological reading, and an eschatological reading. Now, those are three really fancy words with very simple meanings that we're going to see as we begin to progress through the psalm. And the reason we're doing this is because when you go to work on Monday morning and you ask somebody, what did your pastor preach about? And they say, well, it was some pre-Father's Day sermon. You can say, oh, yeah. We did three readings in Psalm chapter 2. No, that's not the reason. The real reason we're doing this is because we want to plumb the depths of this psalm. We want to pull back the curtain, and we want to see how deep this thing goes, that we can understand what it's like to be a people of Psalm 1, who in our delight, we meditate on God's word day and night. With that in mind, let me read this precious psalm. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we pray and we plead for that note of peace That we would be a people who this morning, this week, this month, this lifetime, we take refuge in you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Let's begin with a contextual reading. I want to, to read through this psalm contextually. And what I mean by that is simply I want to read it in its original context. I want to understand what it was like for David to write this psalm and his audience to first hear this psalm. What were they thinking? What did they hear? Well David as he writes this he's tapping into a critical moment in Israel's history. God himself made an everlasting covenant with David in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 and this is one of the most important moments in Israel's history because God says to David, "I'm establishing you as king and your kingdom will last forever." He's telling that to an earthly king. And so the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, "In your throne and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God had already linked himself to Israel through Abraham in a special way. He said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. But now he does it through David in a special way and says, David, you will always, always and forever have a king on your throne." Because God does this, David is able to see his kingship in a very new and a special way. And every king after David is able to do the same. Look at Psalm 2. David is able to rightly think of kingship as divinely appointed. That's in verse 2. And as being God's son. That's in verse 7. And an instrument of God's judgment. That's in verse 9. David is able to see this because God has said, look, I have a special relationship with you. Psalm 2 then becomes this royal reminder for David and every king in his line after him that when nations rise up against the nation of Israel... God sits in his throne and he laughs in derision. You can picture King David and kings after him picking up Psalm 2 and reading verses 7 through 9 and saying, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage. They took this Psalm as a promise saying God is going to deliver us. He's promised that he has this unique relationship to us and he will deliver us. This first reading, this contextual reading, this inspires faith for us. We're reminded in Psalm 2 that God is not just in control over the earth. The Psalms talk a lot about the earth, and by that we mean the physical earth, the trees and the mountains and the stars that all give praise to God. Psalm 2 reminds us that Jesus is also in control of the world, that is, the people who inhabit the earth. Now, God today does not maintain this kingly line as he did in Israel. For all the good things about America, we are not the new Israel. We are not God's established rulers in this world. Of course we're not. But he is still very active in how this world ru- runs and who rules it. We get a treat here to sit on on the very first church. Looking back on this psalm, Psalm 2, and interpreting it. You take Psalm 2, which was written a thousand years before Jesus, and you fast forward to the time that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and commissioned his church to reach Jerusalem and the areas beyond it, and you get to Acts chapter 4. And that's an exciting time for the church, but it's a tenuous time for the church because even though they're seeing a bunch of people come to faith, they're beginning to be persecuted. And two of the main people in the church, Peter and John, these are pillars of the church and of faith, have been thrown into prison, and they've been threatened by religious rulers, I don't want you ever to speak the name of Jesus again. What does the church do? What do they do when they hear this from the rulers? Peter and John are released, they gather with the church, they get on their face, and they open Psalm chapter 2. And they pray this psalm back to God using these opening verses. Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? Now they continue their prayer, but watch what they do. This is, a, this is an interpretive, a hermeneutical move. David was writing about his enemies a thousand years before. The church, as they pray this psalm, they replace David's enemies with their own enemies. And they continue their prayer by saying this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed, both Herod and and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. I love this prayer because it takes the contextual reading of Psalm chapter 2 seriously. God says that he rules over this world's rulers. They're taking it seriously. But I also love it because it's such a genuine prayer. The church prays this, and then they ask for boldness. And the reason they ask for boldness is because they're scared. They're praying to God because they are afraid. They're taking this psalm that speaks about God standing over the rulers of today and laughing in derision. They take that and they pray that back to God. And yet, also in that same prayer, they say, you know what? I'm scared. I know you say that you're the ruler over today's rulers, but I don't know how this is going to pan out for me. What the church is acknowledging and what we need to acknowledge is that God himself is the ultimate authority. There is no ruler in this world. There is no dignitary, no president, no boss in your workplace, no enemy that lives on your block who can hurt you ultimately, who is the final word in your life. Only God is that. But those people and those leaders can still hurt us. That's what the church is saying. Jesus says to us, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be afraid instead of him who can kill the body and torment your soul forever. Now that's true, but I get stuck on the first line. <laughs> I don't want anybody to hurt my body. I don't want anything, anybody to do anything to me. And the church is holding this intention. They're saying, God, I know you're the ultimate word. I know you have authority over the people who have authority over us, but we're scared. That's a contextual reading of Psalm chapter 2. It's saying, I believe that God is in control over the earth and the world, and we bring these things to him in our prayers. He is the last word. That's the first reading of Psalm 2. That's a contextual reading. The second way we start back at the beginning and read through this psalm again is a Christological reading. That's a big word that just means we put Jesus smack dab in the middle of this psalm. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus told us to do, right? After he rose from the dead and he was on the road to Emmaus and he was walking with two disciples, he opened up the entire Bible and he said, this entire thing speaks about me. And so this is not a wild goose hunt. This is us saying we're just doing what Jesus is telling us to do. Now, the order of the Psalter is just brilliant. The the putting of Psalm 2 next to Psalm 3 is genius, as we're about to understand. Because in Psalm 2, we get stoked about the Davidic line. We've heard about King David. He's going to be established forever. He's God's son. He's set on Zion. When nations rise up against him, God laughs in derision because David is going to smash them like a man with an iron scepter in a pottery barn shop. He's going to destroy these things and break them to pieces. And as we read this psalm, we say, okay, now we're talking. Now we have a man's man as king over the nation of Israel. Now we have one who is going to demonstrate what it looks like for God to rule the world, that any nation around Israel can look at Israel and say, there is a God in heaven and he can be worshiped in Israel. This gets us fired up. But in the very next verses of the Psalter, Psalms 3 and 1, this same King David says, Help, help me, I'm in trouble. Look at this. Psalms 3, 1, and 2. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. What happened to our iron scepter swinging superhero? He was going to defeat the nations around him. And now he's screaming out for help in the very next song. What happens to David here is what happens to all of us. Reality sets in. David is frail. He's weak, he's sinful, he's disappointing, and it's like the promises that God is making to us through him are too heavy for this man to bear. He he can't hold the weight of God's promises. Isn't that the pattern of the Old Testament? Every time we're introduced to a prophet or a priest or a king in the Old Testament and we begin to think to ourselves, you know what? This sounds like a person, a man or a woman who can finally lead God's people to full freedom. This is going to be the person that's going to establish God's rule on earth, that anybody can look and see what it looks like to serve God. And none of them, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, none of them are up to the challenge. None of them can bear the weight of God's promises until, of course... A man emerges from an obscure village in Galilee, is baptized by John the Baptist, and as he emerges, God speaks from heaven using Psalm 2-7 and says, this, Jesus, is my beloved son. King David, he was my son. Every king after him was my son, but this is... Here is my beloved son. All of a sudden, we have a brand new way to read Psalm chapter 2. We're talking about King David, but we are talking about so much more than King David. So Paul in Acts 13 can preach on Jesus using Psalm 2. And the writer to the Hebrews can introduce his letter talking about Jesus using Psalm 2. And John can write in Revelation that Jesus is going to conquer the world echoing Psalm 2. You miss Jesus in Psalm 2 and you've missed the bus. You're walking to work. I mean, he is everywhere in this psalm. He is dripping out of this psalm. And so we cannot honestly read Psalm 2 without moving from a contextual reading to a Christological reading. Whatever else Psalm 2 tells us about coronating kings in Israel, it tells us that Jesus is crowned the perfect king, and Jesus is able to do what no other king in David's line could do, and that is fulfill the promises of God. What are those in Psalm 2? What are the promises that God is making? Well, the promises in Psalm 2 are the same as those in Psalm 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, there is a complete and final salvation for those in Christ. And there is a judgment for those who are opposed to Christ. If we have Repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus, we become united with him as king and we gain those benefits. The New Testament is full of kingly language to talk about the benefit of being a Christian. Galatians 4 says we become heirs with Jesus. We become heirs with a king who himself inherits the whole world. Second Timothy chapter two says that we are going to reign with Jesus. That only makes sense when we understand that Jesus himself is king. We're going to reign with him. And verse 12 makes sense to say, blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's our refuge. That's where we find rest as a believer. But what do we do with the first half of verse 12? This is a difficult passage to read and to meditate on. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, we just spent nine months preaching about Jesus from the Gospels, and it really feels in my Christian life that trying to get a handle on Jesus is like trying to hold a beach ball under a pool of water. Every time you get comfortable with that thing, it pops out in a different direction. Every time you think you have a a handle on Jesus and you understand him, he surprises us in new ways. He is not tame. He's not a dose of religion. He is not a spiritual pastime. Jesus is king of the cosmos, and you better believe when he looks out over this world and he sees its injustices, he says, kiss the sun lest you kindle my anger and you perish in the way. That is a new look at Jesus that we don't often think and talk about. When we speak about worldwide injustice, our minds quickly go to the biggies, the the Stalins and the Hitlers of this world. But just in these past two weeks, I've heard some stories from our city, Columbia, and the things and the injustices and the wickedness that happens a couple miles from here that have made me lose sleep at night. There are things I wouldn't even speak in this room that happen here in our city You know this to be true. You know wickedness abounds in our city and it is gross and it is flagrant and it hurts people. And when we read Psalm 2 and we understand that Jesus is coming to judge, whether you are a servant or a person who pumps gas or you are a dignitary or a president, all will stand before Jesus when we hear that. That reminds us and compels us about evangelism. We better be talking to people in our neighborhood about this kind of Jesus. But you know it's also good news. Because in this world we see broken forms of justice. And we see flagrant injustice. And Jesus is telling us none of that goes unnoticed. There is an ultimate and a final justice that will put that wickedness to end forever. That's hard to think about, but that is actually very good news for the world. Jesus is at the center of this psalm. We must read this psalm understanding Jesus. And that brings us to our third and final sermon for today, our third reading of this text, and that is an eschatological reading of Psalm chapter 2. That's a big word. Eschatology simply means the study of end times. How's this world going to end? How does this all unravel in the end? And so to read this psalm eschatologically is merely to look from David's day to Jesus and then to the end of the world, to look at the horizon and see how this informs us about where this this world is headed. Now all these readings begin to blend together after a while and that's okay. Jesus to talk about Jesus is to talk about the end of the world, but I want specifically to speak about how psalm 2 is doing just this. We said that Psalm 1 and 2 stand in a totally different camp than the rest of the Psalter. We said that they kind of act as a gate to the garden of the Psalms because Psalm 1 and 2 remind us that the rest of the Psalms, they're not just moral tidbits. You can't just walk by this garden and pick up a helpful thought like you can grab a fortune cookie. You need to pass through the gate of Psalm 1 and 2 and understand that every single Psalm is written in the context of a covenant that we live before a holy God, that we are in a kingdom and he is king, and that's how we understand every single psalm. Now, Psalms 1 and 2 really present an ideal picture of the world that is not fully realized. When we read Psalm 1 and 2, we say, this is what I want. This is exactly what I want. But when we read Psalms 3 through 150, we say, this is how I feel. This is what my world looks like from day to day. I don't feel like a tree planted by streams of water in Psalm 1. I don't feel like someone who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night. It doesn't feel like the wicked rulers of today are being smashed to bits. It doesn't feel like when I run to Jesus, he is my full and final refuge. That's the ideal, but that's not how I feel. And the rest of the Psalter unpacks what David is saying in Psalm 3, help me. I know I'm supposed to be smashing the nations to bits, but that ain't happening. And I need help where I am today. That tension, that dissonance, when we read Psalm 1 and 2 and say, that's what I want, and get to the rest of the Bible and say, this is how I feel, that's what theologians call the already and the not yet. That's that's us beginning to understand that Jesus has conquered, Jesus has accomplished, Jesus has said it is finished, and those benefits are, are realized by us, but it's not complete. Everything's not done, even though we taste those benefits, we don't experience them fully, and so we're in this limbo state of the already, the not yet, the this is what I want, but this is what I feel. We have these benefits. But, but we're experiencing them in fits and starts. I'm reading a book on sanctification this week that's entitled An Infinite Journey. Sanctification is, of course, this period from when we're justified, when we come to faith, to when we're glorified and we're made like Jesus. And this step-by-step process of looking more and more like his son. The book is entitled An Infinite Journey, which is funny because it's not infinite. It will end eschatologically on that last day. But I guess there wasn't enough room on that book to say it's a really, really long, tough, hard, disappointing, often ordinary journey. That's what we're in the middle of. That's what we're experiencing today. We are tasting the benefits to be united with God's son, but we don't fully realize those things. We, <clears throat> Julie and I have dear, dear missionary friends who are right now walking through almost an identical thing that Julie and I walked through two years ago, and that is they completely left everything to go to the mission field, they served there for 18 months, and due to health concerns, they had to come back to the States. They weren't planning on doing that. They thought they would live their entire lives overseas in Japan in the same way that Julie and I thought we would spend our entire lives in South Asia. But they are here sitting on American soil wondering what on earth just happened. When, when you try to do something big for God and you feel the sovereign door slam in your face, you better believe that you're going to pick out some choice words from the Psalms and pray those things back to God God, why have you forsaken me? What are you doing in the midst of this? How can this be part of your plan? And how can this be a good idea? Last week, these missionary friends sent out an email and they basically detailed this loss. They explained All that happened, they explained that they had to return from the field. They explained that their dreams had been broken. They explained that they have no idea what they're going to do next. They had left everything to go. What on earth is waiting for them back in America? And they signed this incredibly intense, anxious-building, depressing email with, Until all is as it should be. Until all is as it should be. It's, it's not that way right now. And for this family, it's anything but that. And for the graves and the graves, it is not the experience of right now. For all of us who are beset by the sins that we confess confess this Sunday, we've confessed every Sunday we've been together and they still dog us. For those who us who are plagued by sickness and ill health that dogs us in this world, it is not as it should be. For those of us who experience injustice and we see this in our workplace, we see this in our neighborhood, we see this in the places we work, and we cry out, Lord, don't you see what is happening here? Put an end to this thing. It is not as it should be. And when we open up Psalm chapter two, and we have eyes to see the eschatological horizon, the way this world is leading, we can open this Psalm and say, I will find my refuge in Jesus until all is as it should be. Let's pray together. Lord, I look at this room and I see so much brokenness and so many places in our lives and our families that things are not as they should be. And we stand on your word and these promises that you provide a sweet and a perfect refuge It's only found in you, and it's only completed on that last day. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes to the foothills from where our help comes from, that we would see that you are tying this world together in your perfect plan, and you will accomplish this. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.